O Lord, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, so let your word be that goes out from your mouth. Let it not return to you empty, but accomplish in us that which you purpose, that we might abide in Christ and bear fruit that will last. For we pray in his name. Amen. The first lesson this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 14, verses 13 through 22. The context of this passage has to do with the question of whether or not it was proper for Christians to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Sometimes when you went to the market to buy your meat, you didn't know whether or not certain meat that was available for sale had previously been sacrificed to idols. And so there was a discussion in the early church about whether or not such meat was suitable for Christian consumption. And this text is Paul's answer to that question, as well as the broader principles behind that answer. So I invite you now to listen for God's word to you. Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. If your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin for one for whom Christ died. So do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The one who thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and has human approval. Let us then pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for you to make others fall by what you eat. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. The faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. Blessed are those who have no reason to condemn themselves because of what they approve. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning we begin a summer sermon series called Meet the Prophets. Uh, last summer we did a study of the Psalms, and so it seemed fitting this summer to turn to the many prophets uh, who can be found throughout the Old Testament. Throughout the rest of the year, many preachers, myself included, tend to default to the New Testament, and so I think it's useful during the summer to intentionally spend time studying the Old Testament, and so uh, the prophets will be our means of doing that this summer. Uh, many of the prophets have intense messages and so many of these sermons will be somewhat weighty, I assume, uh, though you may be surprised throughout the summer at some of the tender soft spots that we just might discover within the prophets. 
We begin today with the prophet Jeremiah, though, who uh, had a very weighty life and an even weightier message. The name Jeremiah means the Lord lifts up or the Lord is exalted, which is a strange name for Jeremiah, who spent so much time being pushed down, even thrown into a cistern at one point in his life. So I invite you now to open your hearts and minds to the message of the Old Testament prophets as we begin this morning with the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 20, verses 7 through 18. Listen now for God's word to you. Jeremiah says, O Lord, you have enticed me, and I was enticed. You have overpowered me, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I must cry out. I must shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say, I will not mention the Lord or speak any more in his name, then within me there is something like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terror is all around. Denounce him, let us denounce him. All my close friends are watching for me to stumble. Perhaps he can be enticed and we can prevail against him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and they will not prevail. They will be greatly shamed for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, you test the righteous. You see the heart and the mind. Let me see your retribution upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hands of evildoers. Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying, A child is born to you, a son, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon, because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come forth from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever been in a situation in which you had to speak up? You just had to say something. Maybe you had to confront a friend or loved one over self-destructive behavior. Maybe you had to play devil's advocate 
and offer an opposing view into a rapidly evolving group discussion in which groupthink was creating certain blind spots. Or maybe you observed an injustice that others around you felt just fine about, and you had to be the one to step in and say, enough. Any such situation when we have to speak up is inherently uncomfortable, even for the least conflict-avoidant among us. No one likes to blow against the wind or swim against the current. But sometimes we have to. Sometimes we have to disrupt the status quo. Sometimes we have to speak up. Scripture describes this imperative of speaking up as the prophetic burden. And to bear the prophetic burden is to be the bearer of bad news or the bearer of good news that people will perceive to be bad news. It's to tell the truth that people don't want to hear. This prophetic burden is a key term throughout uh, the Hebrew texts that bear the names of many prophets in the Old Testament. It's called the prophetic Massah. It's the prophetic burden of bearing the word of God. Each prophet bears the burden of their message for their contemporaries. And Jeremiah's burden is particularly heavy, his message particularly provocative. And what's the gist of Jeremiah's weighty message buried away in that long lament? It's easy to miss in verse 8, but it's found in two short words at the end of that verse. For whenever I speak, Jeremiah says, I must cry out and I must shout violence and destruction. Jeremiah condemned the violence and the destruction he observed in the culture of 6th century Judah. He warned that a culture enamored and propagated by violence would ultimately meet a violent end. And when Nebuchadnezzar came knocking with Babylon's armies in the middle of Jeremiah's tenure as prophet, Jerusalem faced just that, violence and destruction. Jeremiah's message is burdensome because it had made him the object of scorn and derision. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me, Jeremiah declares. And he complains that God has forced him into this office as pro- of prophet, enticing Jeremiah into it by placing a message within him that cannot be ignored. Within me there is something like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. That's the prophetic burden. And Jeremiah goes on to curse his own life. So unbearable is the burden of this message and its corresponding rejection and scorn. Cursed be the day on which I was born. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. You can probably see why. It's for good reason. He was active during a particularly evil and tumultuous time, and his warnings were unheeded and rejected. Jeremiah directed his message toward the king and the temple, 
the power brokers in his society who were not interested in changing their ways. And they responded with much abuse, even throwing him in a deep well and leaving him to die. Jeremiah had much to weep about, and the book that bears his name certainly conveys the weight of the misery with its intense graphic language. As Jeremiah cried out against violence and destruction, he observed all around him people responding by whispering among themselves, saying, denounce him, let us denounce him. People did not want to receive correction for their violence. Instead, they wanted to silence the voice of the prophet. And so it goes for prophets. Today, general calls against violence and destruction are well-received, so long as they're directed at people out there, right? People at a distance. Nothing makes for a good prayer like a prayer for world peace, right? We've been praying urgently and without controversy for the people of Ukraine for months. We've been praying for years for peace in the Middle East. And we all agree that these are the right prayers to pray, right? And similarly, the prophets of Israel did just fine when they denounced the foreign nations. But when they turned on their own kings and their own priests and their own people and demanded greater faithfulness to God, that's when their burdens became heavy. That's when people turned on them. After all, it's hard to take a good, hard look at ourselves and our society and our leaders. And so when condemnation of violence hits closer to home, calls for peace become harder to swallow, and we become prone to deflecting them. When we look at our own nation and its problems, we may still affirm those general calls for peace, but we don't love to take too much responsibility for our own country's violence, do we? It's not hard to see that in America, we live in a violent society. And it's hard to find exceptions to this cultural norm, though we may prefer to point out violence in one community more than another. But everywhere we look, violence lurks in the shadows or right out in the open. Gang violence in inner cities always spikes during the summer. But according to the FBI, about 33,000 violent street gangs, motorcycle gangs, and prison gangs are rampant in America today. Meanwhile, the threat from white supremacists is on the rise. Rural violence has risen immensely since the start of the pandemic. A recent Wall Street Journal article on soaring small-town murder rates suggests that the breakdown of deeply rooted social connections that bind rural communities together may have contributed to this violence. And even for many Americans, and perhaps many of us, whose wealth can shield us from the effects of much of the violence in the real world, nevertheless, consume a great deal of media violence as entertainment. For example, according to the American Psychological Association, 
Certain video games reward players for killing innocent bystanders, police, and prostitutes using a wide range of weapons, including guns, knives, flamethrowers, swords, baseball bats, cars, hands, and feet. In some, the player assumes the role of hero, while others, the player is the criminal. Though ironically rated M for mature, these games seem immature to me. I guess it depends on our definition of maturity. Now, no link has been firmly established between violent video games and actual violence. So far as I can tell, the results of these studies are all over the place. Still though, as technology improves and these games become more vivid and realistic, isn't it worth asking why is it so entertaining to simulate murdering people? Is violence a game? What gives it such allure? And most of all, how is it edifying? How is it good for us? The same question could be asked about gruesome movies, music lyrics, and even so-called sports that are really just glorified fighting. It's as though there is an assumption that if people give their consent to participate in digital violence or sporting violence, then it somehow isn't dehumanizing. For some reason, media violence is widely entertaining to Americans. The fact is, violence is commonplace in our society, and we've come to tolerate it in all sorts of forms, in all sorts of places. If Jeremiah were to wander around our nation today, he would surely continue to shout violence at every turn. And it seems likely we would ignore him, or worse, throw him back into the cistern. Friends, America's violence is the burden we bear as the church in America, as followers of Jesus Christ who declared that all who live by the sword will die by the sword, who told us to turn the other cheek and thereby break cycles of violence. It's a burden we must bear as we long for and work for God's peaceable kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We must call for a different vision of human flourishing in the midst of a violent world. In 2012, I was preparing to travel to Kenya, and I was surprised at how many people were nervous for me to go. Kenya is so dangerous, they would knowingly explain to me. After all, Al-Shabaab had recently carried out a horrific attack in a mall in Nairobi, which had gained international attention. Nevertheless, I went and I spent a few weeks in rural Kenya, my stuff stored in unlocked huts with open windows. I never once felt afraid or unsafe. I even asked my Kenyan host if there was much crime in his community since nothing was locked and there was no law enforcement anywhere. He said, no, not really. And when I asked him why there wasn't crime, he smiled and said, if something happened, everyone would know who did it. How that could be the case, I still don't really understand. And yet, I suppose since everyone's chickens just run around wherever they want and everyone seems to know whose chickens are whose, 
the inability to conceal any crime must have something to do with that deep communal knowledge that they share. Everyone there knows each other too well, perhaps even all too well. As I began my journey home from Kenya on a flight from Nairobi to London, a couple hours in, I tuned into a BBC news briefing on my seatback entertainment screen. And to my horror, I saw that a mass shooting had taken place in a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, just miles from where I'd grown up. It would be hours before I landed in London and could call my family to make sure they were safe. And it turned out that three youth from my youth group had been in an adjacent theater during the shooting and had to be evacuated out the emergency exit. They're still horrified to this day. People have been so nervous for me to go to Kenya, and yet it's in America where mass shootings are commonplace. I'll never forget that juxtaposition of my supposedly dangerous trip to Kenya with this mass shooting just miles from the house where I grew up. The prevalence of guns and the allure of gun culture in America is the most obvious example of the violent nature of our society. In 2019, Amnesty International issued a travel warning which, quote, calls on people worldwide to exercise caution and have emergency contingency plans when traveling throughout the USA. In recent years, Japan, Germany, Ireland, Canada, and New Zealand have all issued warnings to their citizens about traveling to the United States. Japan called us simply a gun society. As gun violence continues to plague us, we struggle to take responsibility for the violence in our nation or do anything to address it. Liberals point to the government and demand stronger legal restrictions. Conservatives point to individual responsibility and societal ills and demand social renewal. Imagine if we did all of those things rather than none of them. Friends, Jeremiah's prophetic burden was to decry the violence and the destruction in his society. And just as Jeremiah demanded a higher way of being for his people, so also we must issue the same demands to ours. And it's not just about guns, though it's also not, not about guns, of course. It's about all the ways that we consume violence as thrill or entertainment, all the ways that we tolerate it against minoritized communities, all the ways that domestic violence undermines the safety of our homes and laces our children's childhoods with trauma. But standing against violence in all its forms will be a burden. It will often not be well received. We may even become, as Jeremiah did, the objects of derision and scorn. We may be mocked, considered a laughingstock. But such is the burden of bearing the word of God within us. Such is the burden of speaking up and confronting the worst that plagues our society. After the Sandy Hook shooting, Christian activists Shane Claiborne and Michael Martin began working on a project called Beating Guns. 
They were inspired by the prophets Isaiah and Micah, who promise a day when people will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. What Claiborne and Martin do is they take donated guns and they melt them down and fashion them into garden tools. It's their witness to the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, that there will come a day when nation will not lift up sword against nation, nor, I suppose, neighbor against neighbor, and neither will they learn war anymore. It's a kind of sign act, prophetic sign act, that makes me wonder what we might do to confront the problem of violence in our society. And I wonder what we might do as a church to stand against destruction and stand for peace. How might we bear the prophetic burden of God's word, which should burn urgently inside each of us such that we cannot hold it in? It's a conversation worth having. But whatever we do in our own little ways, may all that we long for and work for anticipate the coming day of God's justice, freedom, and peace. May it be so. Amen.